0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. As we've been building up for the past few weeks, today we're going to talk about a theory of atonement, and we're going to go into several theories of atonement over the next few episodes. But this first one we're going to start with is actually unique and a uh, what do you call it? an original theory of atonement from my father that's based upon Mormon scriptures as well as the normal scriptures as well. But just as an overview, we're going to talk about this theory, and then next time we're going to go into different theories of atonement and kind of compare them and see where their strengths are and where some of the weaknesses are and in comparison to this theory. But tonight we're just going to go in depth and try to understand what this is. So my dad's theory of atonement is called the compassion theory of atonement. And to start us off, I just want to read this thing that is from a paper he wrote on atonement so it says it seems to me that a theory of atonement ought to answer or at least cast some light upon at least the following questions one how is christ's life death and resurrection either necessary or uniquely beneficial to expiate or eradicate the effects of sin in our lives so that we are reconciled to god here and now two why can't we just be forgiven without someone suffering three why does Christ's suffering and experience atone for our sins in a way that the Father and Holy Ghost do not? For how could Christ bear our sins or take our sins upon him that we commit in the here and now in a way that caused him to suffer? In other words, in the past. We'll get into that. And number five, how do the ordinances of sacrament and baptism, among others, signify what occurs in atonement? And he adds, in addition, a theory of atonement ought to meet abelard's constraint to develop a model of atonement that is neither unintelligible arbitrary illogical nor immoral because you say kind of jokingly after all who wouldn't prefer a theory which is intelligible non-arbitrary logically coherent and morally acceptable okay so that's just an overview of what some criteria of a theory of atonement should answer and there's different names for different theories my dad's theory is called the compassion theory of atonement And the first section in Compassion Theory of Atonement is God's Compassion in Atonement. So start us out, if you would, and kind of tell us why you chose this word compassion and what's kind of the etymology of that term.
1: Compassion comes from two words in Latin, cum and passione. And what that means, to come or cum in Latin, means with. So it means to be with and to share in the feelings and experience of another In unity with them is what compassion means in its etymology. And so the compassion theory, the reason I chose this, is that atonement, broad 35,000-foot overview, is God's mode of being with us to be at one as the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one, and to invite us into that relationship. And so atonement is the means of effecting that union.
0: Okay, and tell me if this is true. I don't know, but... So this word atonement, I heard the monks that were translating the Bible or something, they kind of made up this word atonement, and it does basically mean at one Is that true, or is there another etymology to it?
1: No, that's literally true, but remember that the word atonement that they're coming up with is their best attempt to figure out how to translate Hebrew words and Greek words that are used to refer to what Christ did that frees us from sin. And so, in Hebrew, the word kafar is usually the word for atone, and it means something very different. It means to cover, the way that the priest covered the ritual altar with the blood of a sacrificial animal. So, to atone was literally to cover it with blood. And so, it means one thing in Hebrew. In Greek, they really don't have a word that means to cover in that same sense. The the Greek sense is very different. It is more to what we would now say by our word expiate, to rid ourselves of. And there are a lot of different senses of this. There's also a word for to heal and to make whole. And so it was interesting that when they were translating the Bible into English, that they primarily came up with this word atonement as their best expression. It expresses their understanding and their theory of what is happening in the New Testament. Not really a great translation of, of really Hebrew and Greek terms, and probably not even really within the semantic field of those terms. The semantic field means if you take all the words that can be connoted, that kind of mean the same thing, or that could possibly you know be related as synonyms, those kind of things, that it's not really within that field of words. And so it's just interesting that they came up with the word atonement.
0: All right, and so we'll read a little bit from the chapter summarizing the compassion theory of atonement. He said it can be summarized as follows. The purpose of atonement in LDS scriptures is to bring about the bowels of mercy so that God is moved with compassion for us and we are moved with gratitude to trust him by opening our hearts to him. The result of atonement is that we are free to choose to turn back to God and he is free to accept us into a relationship of shared life. Atonement removes, casts out, and releases the guilt that alienates us and it also brings us together into shared life. When we let go of our past and release the painful energy of alienation, Christ experiences that release and receives into himself the pain that we have experienced to be transformed by the light of his love. If we refuse to let go of our past histories and the pain that arises from our sins, we will continue to experience the pain. If we let go of that pain, however, then Christ experiences the very pain that we release, but we no longer have to. In his passion, we find compassion. He literally feels our pains and is thereby filled with compassion for us. In this sense, Christ suffers for our sins and bears our iniquities. Like I said, that's a brief summary of it, and we're going to go into different aspects of it now. So let's jump into a few scriptures that you're getting this from, because like I said, going through this chapter, it is clear that you have gone to pains to make it consistent with scripture, or you've read the scripture and then... Rather than having other theories kind of dictate how you interpret scripture, you're trying to take the scripture and actually read what it's saying and then put all the things together and then this is where this theory comes from
1: yeah so i I think the theories, especially those that talk about Christ I mean what really do we have if all of the information that we have really that's reliable and you know there's always a question of the reliability of the New Testament gospel accounts, but they're the primary accounts that we have about how the early christians understood what christ was doing i would add that isaiah 53 played a very large role in their understanding of christ's suffering and what was accomplished we have of course the old testament background because christ's atonement is linked to the sacrificial system of of atonement in the old testament and christ is seen as being prefigured in the old testament in those passages and then we have the uniquely Mormon scriptures, the Book of Mormon, which is just a treasure trove for theories of atonement, frankly. The revelations to Joseph Smith and the Doctrine and Covenants, and Joseph Smith's teachings about this. And so what I'm doing is doing my best to read the scriptures and what they have to say about atonement, and then asking, okay, what are they really telling us about atonement, and what is the best theory that accounts for all of the data that we have?
0: That is good to keep in mind. All right, so the first thing you do is you kind of bring up, we want to look at Doctrine and Covenants section 19 regarding what it says about the pain of Christ suffered in Gethsemane. And you say, at least I assume it refers to the suffering in Gethsemane because it refers to Luke 22:24, which refers to Christ's suffering in Gethsemane. So it says, For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit. And would that I might not drink that bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. And again, that's uh, d and through 19. So let's go over some of the claims made by this scripture. You say the first claim is Christ suffers pain for our sins. Yeah, I think
1: the most one of the most interesting claims of this revelation in DNC 19 is the causal assertion, which suffering caused myself even God the greatest of all to tremble because of pain. So he's saying this is what happens. If you repent, I suffer but you don't. So there are two counterfactuals in this scripture. Counterfactuals are contrary to fact. If this had occurred, then something else would have occurred. So it says if we repent, then Christ suffers for our sins. If we don't repent, We suffer for our sins, and it is our sins that Christ suffers for that cause him pain, and it refers then to the experiences in Gethsemane and says that that caused him to suffer. And I think when it says that it's causing him to suffer every pore, the sense is it's the greatest kind of suffering that a human being could possibly imagine, not that he's literally bleeding from every pore in his body. That would be an interesting thing to Contemplate, but I don't think it should be taken literally. And only Luke in all of the Gospels refers to suffering in every pore, so it's not a Matthew, Mark, or John. And so what we're dealing with,
0: I think, is a metaphor to say this is very, very intense pain. Yeah, that's good to keep in mind. A lot of people read that literally, and it's like pores aren't connected to your arteries or veins, so I'm not sure how that could happen anyway. Okay, cool. So the second claim is we do not have to suffer what he suffers for our sins if we repent.
1: Yeah, so this is the first counterfactual that is in D.N.C. 19, again a counterfactual is a contrary to fact assertion of cause and effect. So we escape suffering but Christ suffers when we repent, That's, I mean there's just no way to escape that that is what D.N.C. 19 is actually asserting and the fact is that somehow our suffering that we would suffer is transferred to Christ so that he suffers it instead in our place.
0: All right, very true. Okay, and then the opposite of that, of number two, is number three, that if we don't repent, we will suffer for our sins just the way that Christ suffers for them if we do repent. So, if we
1: don't repent, the intense suffering that he would experience, instead we experience. In other words, we get the just result for what we've done. If we repent, Christ gets the unjust result of suffering in our place. And I say unjust because it's not fair to have somebody who is innocent suffering, while the person who is not innocent escapes suffering. So repentance, in essence, is a change of status in terms of whether or not we deserve to receive suffering, and it's a result of Christ being willing to suffer in our place that constitutes the release from sin and atonement, according to DNC 19.
0: Side question, do you interpret the suffering that we will have to suffer if we don't repent as something that that means, like the immediate consequences, or because the scripture seems to be referring to some future time after judgment or something like that?
1: Yeah, well, take any small peccadillo in your life,
0: take something,
1: I'm going to give an analogy. It's like, you can't stand the way that your wife clicks her lips when she eats food okay she takes a bite and goes oh. now you might be able to put up with that for a few months but not for a lifetime you're going to have to talk, talk to her about it and it's your issue not hers. so you're going to have to work it through okay otherwise it's going to drive you crazy and it's going to alienate you. now take something that there something about yourself that you just can't accept say that you find yourself really being unkind to certain groups of people and it's a thing about yourself that you just don't like. You might be able to put up with it for a month. You can put up with it maybe for a few years. But after a while, you're just gonna get sick of yourself. And even if you could put up with it for a lifetime, you cannot put up with it for an attorney. After a while, it is gonna become so unbearable and so painful that it is just going to overwhelm us in, you know, what we're doing. And sin is that way. For a lot of people, I think being in sin, the scriptures say that they lose a sense of sin and they lose any sense of of, of suffering they just are past feeling is the term that the scripture use but we have to live with ourselves for eternity and we can't hide we cannot stuff and avoid the pain that we create by the sin in our lives and remember what sin is sin is a rupture of relationship sin is anything that harms or damages relationships and and the vast array of relationships And we might be able to live in relationships that are broken for a while, but after a while, it's just not going to be acceptable to any of us to be separated in that way for an eternity.
0: Would you say it's kind of like a toothache, for example? It starts out small, but after a while, it becomes an excruciating experience if you've tried to ignore it and you haven't taken care of it. And so after, though seemingly small, like you said, and you can put up with it for a while, you can't put up with it without dealing with excruciating pain after however long has passed.
1: It's an excellent metaphor, actually. I use the metaphor of, you know, you've got a sore on your body, and it has pus in it, and it's festering. You might be able to put up with the pain of that festering for a while, but after a while, you're going to have to pay attention to it. And it's like, and especially the toothache is a great metaphor, because after a while, the toothache is the only thing you're going to be able to think about, and you're not going to be able to live with it. You may even be willing to go to a dentist to get it taken care of who will cause you intense pain for a short period of time so that you don't have to keep experiencing this pain every day of your life and anybody who's willing to go to a dentist, let's face it, they have to be they're either thinking that they're escaping intense pain or they're in intense pain because there would be no other reason to go to a dentist.
0: Okay, let's go to number four, which is by suffering as a result of our sins, Christ fulfills the will of the Father with respect to his mortal life.
1: Yeah, this is an amazing moment referred to here in D&C 19. We talked about it a bit in the first volume, when the entire fate of the universe hung in the balance while Christ was choosing whether he would go through with the plan that the Father had and the mission that he had undertaken to deliver us from sin. And if he, he had a genuine choice in this moment to choose, not as the metaphor he uses, to drink that bitter cup, or to do the Father's will, and in fact what he says as well, You know, there's a part of me, I I really didn't want to do this, but I love my father so much, I'm going to do it anyway. And so this is an amazing moment, I think, in the history of the universe. And it is the primary moment in which he earns our praise, worship, and everything that we can give in love.
0: Okay, and you kind of went over the last one, so I'll just read it, but you already kind of said it. So it says, Christ had a choice about whether he would accept the suffering into his life. So, like you said, it was a choice. And you say, it's also important to note in this scripture that we're referring to in D&C 19 here, what Christ suffers is not vicarious guilt or punishment. Rather, he suffers the pain of our sins that we will feel if we don't repent. And that's an important distinction that we'll get into a little bit later, I guess. So, not guilt, but the consequences, basically, or the effects.
1: Yeah, he is not morally responsible for what we do. And he doesn't suffer guilt because guilt is a personal reaction to one's own personal sins for which one has moral responsibility. So he's not experiencing those things because those can be experienced only for one's own
0: firsthand acts. And yeah, that'll make sense as we talk about these next few things. Okay, so there's distinctive claims of the compassion theory of atonement. So I guess before I read this, can you orient us, I guess, to the distinctive view of Gethsemane? in LDS thought, being a unique place of atonement. Just because in in no other Christian faith is Gethsemane anything more than Christ's trepidation before he has to go do the real atonement, which is all the suffering and getting killed on the cross.
1: Yeah, I think it arises primarily out of the scripture we just reviewed, which is D.N.C. 19, which focuses on the suffering that Christ experiences while in Gethsemane. So what we're looking at something that is somewhat unique to the LDS perspective based upon this revelation to Joseph Smith, and as you've already noted, the reason that's important, it expands the scope of duration of the atonement. In other words, it's not just Christ dying on the cross, it's not just the resurrection, it's now an entire scope of experience that he's having that includes all of those things. And so it's stretching what we consider to be, quote, unquote, the atonement. And remember, atonement then is still just a 15th century term that those who are translating the Bible into English came up with to express what they understood Christ had accomplished. So when we use the term atonement, I need to emphasize that it's really not reflective of the semantic field of the words that are appearing in the New Testament transcripts or in the Old Testament.
0: Right, good point. Okay, now I'll read this. I guess it's a few sentences about the distinctive claims. So what's distinctive here? You say, The compassion theory sees atonement as a reciprocal reconciliation of our alienation. That is, the atonement not only reconciles us to God, but also reconciles God to us. It not only results from our choice to be in relation to God, but also from his prior choice to be in relation with us. The suffering that Christ experienced not only moves us with compassion for him, but it also moves Him with compassion for us. In the atonement, He not only becomes what we are, He brings us to be what He is. Atonement thus unites us and reconciles our alienation that we have really chosen.
1: Let's point out one thing, and that is, there's a distinctive scriptural basis for this reciprocal view of atonement, and it arises out of Hebrews, but it's found primarily in Alma 7, when it's talking about the things that God learned by being human. what he learned by being human was how to have compassion for us. In 2 Nephi 2, 9, in Alma 34, in Alma 40 through 42, primarily in Alma 42, what we see is what the atonement does. It says that Christ's bowels are moved with compassion for us. And so what's happening is Christ is becoming human. And as a result, he's gaining experiential knowledge firsthand of what it means to suffer as a human. That's is in Alma 7. And so we have this uniquely Mormon view of a reciprocal effect. Not only is what Christ is experiencing have the effect of basically overcoming our alienation, it also has the effect of giving to God, of allowing God to have a first-hand personal experience as a human being so that he is moved with compassion for us in a way that will make it so that he can then suffer for us and overcome our alienation.
0: Good scriptural base for this view. Thank you. The next section is Reconciling Humans to God. So this is kind of what the last few podcasts have been about, so I don't know how in-depth we need to get, but I'll just read a few things and we can talk about it, at least as it relates to your specific views. So the starting point for Alma's Exposition of Atonement, which is in what, Alma 42, were you saying?
1: It's in 34
0: and 42. I just forgot to write that down, Okay. Yeah, Alma's exposition for atonement is that we all, like Adam, freely choose to leave God's presence. It is noteworthy that Alma's discussion of atonement presupposes human pre-existence in the sense that all humankind has chosen to be cut off from God's presence by becoming mortal. I mean, we've pretty much gone into the last few times, I guess, so...
1: What's interesting is that Alma places his exposition of atonement within the entire plan of salvation. And so in order to understand atonement, he has to explain god's entire plan in dealing with humans and it's interesting if you know reading Alma 42 the way he uses the term adam he switches between adam as a name and adam as all humankind and so it's a way of bringing us into the story of adam as god's plan is unfolding
0: for him and how god's plan leads to atonement the next quote here is we have all transgressed the law of love we have all engaged in self-deception to hide our failure to love from ourselves. However, rather than immediately execute judgment that banishes us from God's presence forever, God has mercifully chosen to grant to us a period of time in which we can repent. And so that yeah, it's directly from Alma, where there's basically that just summarizes a scripture in different words that God has granted us a time or a grace period in which we can now choose to come back or turn to God or you know, choose him without being in his presence directly like we've talked about before.
1: Right. So God's both merciful and just because he could justly execute judgment immediately, but he's merciful by giving us time, a space in which to repent. He places us on probation to allow us to make a different choice before we ultimately choose. And the ultimate choice is life or death or whether we want to be with God or whether we reject God.
0: Okay, let me ask, I mean, this might be a side question that would be a bigger discussion, so if it's too big, we don't have to do it now, but what is the basis for saying he would be justified in judging us completely? Because like, I don't, it doesn't seem like that, because like, here's a plan, go down and be ignorant, and then inevitably you'll sin, and then I, how would he be justified in condemning us immediately if that was all part of kind of a trick to get us to be more like He could have taken our our choice to leave his presence
1: as a final choice. Instead, he's given us a space in which to make a different choice. And so he could just say, no, you made the choice to leave, you're done. And so this takes into account the entire plan of salvation and and even our, our pre-mortal life. In addition, it's like we are with everybody. We can choose to judge people now and hold them in their past so that they can't move forward. Or we can say, look... I'm going to withhold my judgment because nobody's ever really done. And I'm not going to make it so that I judge you based upon your past. Instead, I'm going to let you grow into something new. And so I'm going to see you as you actually are in each moment without judgment. That's really the distinction that Alma is making, by the way. This is called God's mercy. God is being merciful by giving us this chance to not be caught in our past and stuck in our past because we we won't be forgiven. We won't let go of our past and repent. So this is really an interesting way of saying what we're being freed from is our own past and the judgment of others that will hold us in the past.
0: That makes sense in that context. Uh, All right, then the next quote here. Having seen ourselves in the mirror of his love, we are moved with compassion to repent by ceasing to do what alienates us, to let go of whatever keeps us from being with him, and to do all within our power to show our love out of sheer gratitude to him. Thus repentance entails not only turning to God, but doing whatever we can to repair the harm we have done to our relationships with him and those we have injured by our failure to love. So I guess that refers back to the two great commandments of love God and love your neighbor, or just the law of love is the one thing that God commands of us.
1: Yeah, there's this one commandment, and is the law of love expressed in many different ways. So we've chosen all to be alienated in certain ways. And here's the interesting thing. Again, we've got this metaphor in the Book of Mormon that is a controlling metaphor. It occurs three times in the Book of Mormon and twice in the Bible. And it is this episode of the fiery flying serpents where they come into the camp of Israel. They're biting people and because they're venomous. They're killing people. And Moses saves the people by taking one of the serpents, puts it on a, on a pole and says, if you'll just have the faith to look at this, you'll be saved. In other words, you won't die. Now, this is a very profound expression of atonement. I talk about it a lot more in my book, Fire in the Horizon. But just remember that what it is is an expression of God's love, because the serpent on the pole represents Christ's life and his compassion for us. And so when we see his love for us, remember, we love him because he loved us first. When we see his love for us, and we see that we're not being held in our past and being judged, and that we're given a door to move forward, then we can simply let go of the past and not be stuck in it. More importantly, we can make the judgment of ourselves that I'm not so rotten that I can't move forward. I have this opportunity to make a choice now to let go of my past and to love others.
0: Good stuff there. All right, let's go to the next section, which now we're going to talk about reconciling God to humans. And we did talk about it a bit. All right, so you say, by becoming human, Christ learns something that enables him to move forward. And... To further reconciliation. So I guess, you know, like you said, we went over this in the previous book in the Mormon Christology section or chapter, and saying that, you know, Christ did fully become human in order to be able to have this experience of being a immortal, and therefore he can know more about how to, what is referred to as, succor his people um, you say, the, the radical step of becoming mortal and walking among us to show us how a life of loving reconciliation is lived. Yet Christ also learned something by becoming mortal that he did not previously know experientially. He learned how to succor his people. So what, it, what does this term succor mean? Well, it's coming from,
1: and the word is core, I suppose, but or to give succor, it comes from Alma 7. And what it means is that when I hear somebody Succoring his people, I think of a nurse going among the sick people and those who are injured and healing them or tending to them so that they can heal. And so what he's learning is because he experientially now knows what it is to be human and the kinds of things we experience, he can work with us to heal us, which is what I believe the word sucker means, at least in, in this context. And imagine, I mean, here's the amazing thing to me, and it is amazing thing. Abinadai discusses the atonement in uh, Mosiah 14, he quotes Isaiah 53 and then has some commentary on it in Mosiah 16, all of which are closely related to the atonement and even uses you know, the language about, being, about God's mercy and judgment, being satisfied and God being moved, his bowels being moved with us so that he can heal us. And he puts it in the most stark terms possible, God himself came down among men. I mean, you can't put it any more starkly. And if we truly understand what he's asserting, it's like, that's the most mind-blowing statement I've ever heard in my life, (laughs) okay? In fact, it's so mind-blowing that when the priests of Noah hear it, it's like, you're just crazy, we're going to have to burn you. It really is meant to be a stark shock to our senses, everything that we think could possibly be rational, and to get our attention to go, wow, are you kidding? God went to that length to come down and be one of us? That is amazing.
0: Um, and you say, God has moved with compassion for us because he directly experiences our alienation and suffers the bodily pains and temptations that we suffer. To be mortal is to be heir to alienation and bodily suffering. They cannot be escaped. And so, I guess in that, are you saying, like, obviously, whatever Christ suffered in his life and as a human is not necessarily run the whole gamut of what every single human has ever suffered so he doesn't have per se the full breadth of human experience because he didn't live every single life he lived one life but you're saying in as the overarching effects i guess of mortality he did experience he experienced the pains of the body and the temptations and, and being out of god's direct presence and stuff like that is that kind of what you mean there
1: Yeah, I mean, there are some things that can't be experienced by God as three divine beings united as one in a Godhead, and one of them is alienation. And that's because to be in the Godhead is to be in the most fulfilling unity and relationship that is even possible. So by becoming mortal, he experiences the alienation to not be so closely in unity with divine persons, but I think this alienation is most closely, and here's why his alienation may be the greatest alienation that any human has ever experienced. Imagine the person in the whole history of the world who is most conscious of the presence of, his, of God the Father with him throughout his entire mortal life. And then when he's brought to the breaking point on the cross, when he needs his Father most, he's not there for him. I mean, he gives this excruciating cry from the cross that I think is probably historically reliable. It's multiple attestation in the Gospels. And it's so important. It's preserved in the original Aramaic that he spoke. And the Aramaic is Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? He's quoting a psalm. And so in this moment, it's like he is so overwhelmed by the fact that God is not there with him in his moment of greatest need, when his entire life he has walked in the closest relationship with God that any human being ever had. I mean, if we can grasp the scope and depth of this sense of abandonment and alienation from God, then I don't know how we could grasp that. I mean, unless you've been on a Roman cross and had that kind of consciousness of God all your life and feel that he's not there for you, I don't know how you would know what that means, but he did. And so, I think what the scriptures are portraying for us in his love is that he had to walk all alone in the greatest alienation that any human being ever experienced in that moment. And that's why we focus on that moment as one of the key moments in atonement, because he is healing our alienation and he's experienced the fullness of alienation and bodily suffering. Now, let me go to the other poll. You say that. You know, he really doesn't know every human experience, but that's not true. God is omniscient, (laughs) we're all-knowing, and that includes experiencing with us every experience that we have. Now, he doesn't experience it, as I've pointed out before, from a firsthand experience. So if God knows that I'm in a bank and a robber walks in and points a gun at me, he knows that I'm afraid for my life, but God, in knowing that I'm afraid for my life, is not afraid for his life. But he does experience my experience as closely can be. From a third party perspective, okay? And so he does know the fullness of human experience and pain, but not as his own pain. As God in the Godhead, and none of the divine persons can experience alienation, without a human body, they really can't experience human pain. And so the essence of what it is to be mortal can't be experienced by God as God. In order to experience that, God has to become mortal and experience it firsthand. That is what I take Alma 7 is actually getting at. And I think it's what Abinadi is talking about as well when he says that God became man. And so what they're focusing on is, and this is a key, Christ's entire human life is the atonement, okay? We're expanding the atonement now to everything that Christ has experienced so that he can succor us and be with us and heal us in a way that otherwise would be impossible so what the compassion theory says is his compassion is actually being with us as a human being as well, and that his entire mortal life is a part of what we call the atonement.
0: Good, and yeah, we're going to get into that a bit more in a, in a minute here, but that's something to keep in mind. We just read this. So one of the key purposes of the compassion theory of atonement is to explain how it is that Christ suffers for our sins in a way that is faithful to the scripture, but which does not involve the non-scriptural idea that the Father punished Christ as a substitute. For the punishment that we deserve as a means of satisfying or propitiating his anger against us. You'll see why this is important when we go into specifically what's called the penal substitution theory. So this is directly going against what one of the main theories is that is held by Mormons, and you'll recognize that, that Christ was some sort of a substitute for us that needed to be punished. And you're saying that is not how the compassion theory is talking about Christ's suffering.
1: It's not how the scriptures actually address it. This is a Protestant idea that was created by John Calvin. It is just morally repugnant in addition to being non-scriptural.
0: And yeah, like I said, we'll get into that a lot more later on. So, let's go into this last and biggest section here, which is Christ's suffering as a result of our sins. This is where a lot of unique ideas are coming forth. So, buckle up, because here we go. You say... When we hold on to the sin, there is something that's actually within our bodies so for example, let's just say people that commit a crime that's bad, and then they just kind of hold this guilt inside of them their whole life and it, it affects them they have the stress, this anxiety, this always wondering if you're going to get caught this guilt of unresolving it and you're saying there's an actual energy that's building up in their body that is affecting them physically as well as you know mentally and everything else but it's It's such a real thing that it's not just an idea, but it is something that's affecting the physical form of a person. And so you say it's this energy. So I'll just read this quote, and then we can go back to that. So you say, there's a life energy, or Zoe, we can explain that in a minute here, but I just want to read this, that we receive in the atonement, in the divine life that glorifies and exalts. The energies of God are the flow of the divine energy of life the movement of the Spirit, and the light that proceeds from God to fill the immensity of space. So, never mind, that's actually something else, I guess. That's the next thing. So let me read this next one, and then we can go back and talk about both those things. You say Another key concept of the compassion theory of atonement is that the painful energy of sin that we release through repentance causes real pain when Christ receives it into his life through the union of his life with our life in us okay so let's backtrack so i talked about actual energy of sin affecting us the two quotes here you talked about real energy or zoe life energy that comes from god and again we refer back to the light of christ or this life-giving light that god gives to each of us that the doctrine covenants refers to as filling the immensity of space and you refer to i guess the same painful energy that we harbor as sin as being something that we release this actual energy through repentance that Christ somehow receives into himself through the union when we, I guess, is this when we repent or when when would that occur?
1: Yeah, it occurs when we repent, but it occurs throughout our lives, okay? Because life is a constant repentance for the things that we're doing. I'm bringing together a number of concepts here that are related to forgiveness and the effects of atonement. So we've talked about the fact that when we become Christian, we accept Christ into our lives. The term Zoe is a New Testament term that refers to the kind of life that gives life to God, that is the the shared divine life. And Zoe, it's a vitalist notion, and that is that there is this life force that enters into us when we accept Christ into us. And remember, it's literally, in a sense, in the New Testament, that Christ takes up abode in us. We become a co shared life together. It's like Christ has, has taken up his residence within our own life, within our own bodies. And the notion of light in Mormon scripture is closely related to this life force. We are quickened by a degree of light that reflects. The law, essentially, the kind of law that we are living, and there's another term in the scriptures for life, and that is that when God enters into us, we are quickened by the light of God. Quickened, again, is the term used for the moment when the baby takes its first breath and receives life, okay? And breath is life, by the way, for the Hebrews and for those writing the New Testament. And so, let me give just kind of a quick analogy, but it's only an analogy. Let's say that there's this extremely quick light, <laughs> fast light that God has, and when we join our light with his, our light is much at a much lower speed than his, if you will, and it's like his light comes to a, a, you know, a screeching halt because he's run into our slow, heavy, ponderous light when he's a light speed being, and so it just slows him down. You know, it's like running into a wall for him. Now, it's only a metaphor, only an analogy. But in a sense, what the scriptures are talking about is that the level of light that we have is affected by the kind of law we're living and the kind of life we live, and that when we accept God, it is the very divine life that we have take up residence within us. And so I'm bringing all of these kinds of concepts together that are all associated with discussions of the divine life entering into us as a means of becoming at one with God, a means of overcoming our alienation. Remember. What we're doing through atonement is overcoming our alienation from God and from each other. And so what we're doing is we're sharing, and this is literally what the New Testament has in mind, and I believe it's what the Doctrine of Covenants has in mind. We're literally sharing our life forces with one another. But when we share our life force with God, it's painful for him. But keep in mind, we're sharing our life force with him throughout our lives. <laughs> and so another way to do this is to say it's painful to be in relationship with this. I'm going to give another metaphor. But it's not a metaphor, it's actually literal. It's painful to be around human beings because it's hard to be around us sometimes. We cause a lot of pain for others in our lives. We hurt most those that we say we love the most. And we have to ask the question, what is the price that people have to pay to be in a relationship with us? Because it may be that the, the price that is being exacted to be in a relationship with me is so high that I'm not willing to have the ones I love pay that price anymore. And I've got to do something so that it's not painful to be in relationship with me. I've got to let it go. Coming back, we have to ask what it is that causes Christ. remember it, it says that if we're looking at dNC nineteen there's something that causes pain to Christ, and the fact is is that it seems to have this very literal sense that if I repent, then he suffers. That's what it's saying. in the event I repent, he suffers for me. in the event I don't, he doesn't. That's how I read that scripture. I think it's the most faithful, and frankly, I can't read it any other way. And so as I look at the Mormon scriptures, what it's saying is, as I move into union with God, being in relationship with me and sharing my life with him and my life's energy is very painful. And it's only when we're healed through God. And what happens, another analogy, but there may be more truth to it than analogy, and that is that by joining our life with Christ's life... We are quickened in his life. We are given life by his life. And it's like our light speeds up. (laughs) So it's in synchrony with him. And we don't slow him down anymore. It's not painful to be with us because now we have a shared life. And our life is a shared divine life. But not only is it a shared divine life, we now double the light because we've both shared our light together. And we glorify him with our light. And he glorifies us with his light. So what's happening in atonement is that we are joining our lives together. But initially, it's very painful for God when he joins his life with us. That's how I read the scriptures
0: in this. Yeah, important distinction that we'll explain more as we go on here. So again, you say a key concept of the compassion theory of atonement is that Christ's suffering is not a necessary condition of God being able to forgive us. Rather, Christ feels pain as a consequence of entering into union with us because such union entails feeling the pain of the energy of sin that we release when we repent. And you've talked about that, but I want to kind of focus on the first part. So just a distinction there of what probably most people think about in the Atonement is that, why isn't God just able to forgive us? Why is Christ having to suffer? And in a unique way, this kind of solves that. as saying, well, God can just forgive us. It's not about that. What it is, is getting rid of this pain that you just mentioned as we come together in Christ. It's, I don't know, I guess, you like, can you go into kind of the energy, I guess, of sin that I mentioned before? So what what is this pain other than guilt?
1: We share a co-life with Christ, and what we do is there is this pain that we've held within us, and we release the pain when we repent. We just literally let go of it, but there's a certain darkness in it. There's an actual energy to it, if you will. And the scriptures talk about this. So there's this darkness in sin, okay? And we let go of this energy, but Christ then takes it, and I'm going to use a word, it's going to be very misleading, but then Christ takes and processes it. Another way of saying it is he takes and speeds it up so that it's consonant with divine light and not darkness. But this process is painful. I mean, it causes literal pain and suffering because it's painful to be in relationship with us when we are sinful. And when we repent, takes that pain into himself to be in relationship with us. But as we repent and let go of it, he is able to take and make even the darkness light. The darkness is overcome by his light. And so we literally join our lives together through Christ entering into us at the time we accept him. We open our hearts to him. And he literally then shares energy with us, and our energy for him is painful. His energy for us is sheer joy, (laughs) okay? And when we have these energies combined, he then basically takes our, our energy over time to light speed so that it is the same as his, so that we have the same degree of light. I've read through the Mormon scriptures. Everything I've talked about is scriptural. I could give a dozen scriptural citations for almost everything I said. But it's really just taking and looking at the scriptures and say, okay, what are they really saying here? And this may seem like kind of an antiquated view because the vitalist views that it assumes are not accepted by any medical view of human life. But what we're talking about is shared spiritual life together and divine life that enters into us. And it is a real dimension, but it is not the dimension. I'm not saying that our human lives are, that, that human life is vitalist in this way human life. It is the bodily processes that we have. I'm not talking about a scientific idea of the mortal body. I'm talking about what the scriptures are saying about the way our spiritual lives are.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And I guess this is kind of another metaphor, but I don't know if this plays into this directly, but I remember on my mission you sent me a paper about atonement called The Heart of Atonement, and it talked about kind of this metaphor of when Christ takes on our sins, it's kind of like, I guess you refer back to like the brazen serpent and how interesting it is that a serpent being held up is also the symbol for what heals us. And so you say, you know, what's interesting about uh, a serpent's venom or a snake venom is one way that they develop an antidote for a snake bite is to basically take blood from someone that has been bitten by the snake, but their antibodies have been able to fight it off and overcome it and therefore that blood that has the antibodies is now the cure. And so when we enter into Christ's life, it's kind of like him getting the venom that we're infected with, I guess, and then, but he has the ability to heal it and then return to us the healing abilities, or is that kind of not related to this?
1: No, it's totally related, and I'm glad you brought it up and you, know, you explained it well. It is a host who has confronted the challenge of the venom who has then developed the resistance to it, and then that resistance can be shared with other people, literally in the sense of an anti when a person's bitten by a snake. And this is apparently the kind of thing that the Hebrews had in mind when they're talking about the fiery flying serpents. And it's just another way, another metaphor of saying the same kind of thing, this kind of view is behind the statements in the book of mosiah when king benjamin is speaking and he says you must apply the atoning blood of christ to yourselves okay so what he's saying is you've got to take christ's blood because it has the anti to overcome sin now this is also of course an excellent metaphor for opposition in all things the very thing that kills us is the very thing that will save us and so it's by having this opposition in our lives it's the things that we have to overcome that will ultimately make it so that we can be like God. Without opposition, there is no growth. Without opposition, there is no possibility. And with opposition, it seems that there's this inevitability of sin or alienation, or another way of saying that is over and over again, giving less than love to other people, okay, so that we're alienated from them. And what we're doing is overcoming that alienation. We're joining our lives together. And in order to do that, we have to share Christ's life. We have to be given the antibodies in his blood that he has faced when he confronted the poison of sin. And so, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's an excellent point. What I sent to you was a chapter from the book, Fire on the Horizon.
0: Okay, cool. good to know. All right. So this brings up the natural question that I actually wrote down, but then the very next paragraph that you wrote addressed it. So I thought that was pretty cool. It was just a natural flow of question answers. So you say, I want to simply point out that this view of atonement has at least one overriding virtue. And this refers back to the questions that I told you we need to answer at the beginning. It says, it answers the most difficult question regarding atonement. Why can't God just forgive me without requiring Christ to suffer? After all, I have the power to forgive without requiring that someone else must suffer Why can't God forgive us without requiring a pound of flesh, literally? The answer is that God can forgive us without requiring that Christ must innocently suffer as our substitute, as the condition to propitiate his anger. Say, however, the nature of loving forgiveness is such that by entering into renewed relationship with us, the pain caused by our sins is given to him. And I guess we talked about that, but I just wanted to reiterate again this difference between traditional views that most LDS people hold that can't answer that question of why can't God just forgive us? There's lots of theories that we'll talk about later, but like this you know, this justice or God's wrath, or he's just so mad that there's sin, he can't let it go. Someone has to be punished for the sin. And Christ comes along and says, oh, I'll take the punishment. Fine, I'll take it all out on you, you know? That's a traditional view that, like you're pointing out here, once you talk about it like that, it's pretty barbaric, and I don't know if that's the kind of God that anyone would really want to worship.
1: Yeah, you know, I wouldn't want to spend the weekend with him, let alone in eternity.
0: Exactly. He's basically a really angry guy, I guess.
1: Yeah, just an angry guy who's gotta punish somebody for his anger.
0: So another question that this theory of atonement addresses is this idea of making Christ suffer in the past. For example, I guess the traditional view against substitution theory is that Christ went through the entire atonement, or I guess let's back up here. So Like you said, Christ's entire life is atonement, but also God's way of being in general in the compassion theory is atonement. It's, It's not a moment in the Garden of Gethsemane and that culminated with his suffering and dying on the cross and then it was over. You're saying atonement is forever. It's eternal. It's ongoing. It's God's way of being with us at all.
1: Right. God shares his life with us in every moment. He's seeking to have us enter into a fullness of unity with him. And so being at one with him is precisely the desired relationship he wants to have with us. And that just is what the translators, by the way, meant by the word at, at one, meant to be at one at the same time together. And so it, it literally is atonement, but this atonement is the entire process of, of being reconciled to God. And it includes and entails deification as its end result. And so not only is it our lifetime, it's eternity without end that atonement is the very way God lives and is in relationship with us.
0: So, yeah, let me say the virtues of it, and then I want to kind of bring up the controversy of what you're saying, I guess. So, one of the main virtues of having this view of atonement is it solves this problem. Again, last uh, first book, we painstakingly went over how if the future is set somehow and that God knows infallibly what will happen in the future, then we have no freedom and we're not culpable for that, and there's just, you know, it seems to, at least as far as the Mormon idea of God's plan goes, it would pretty much negate the whole purpose, because we would be automatons just being caused by the future events. And that comes into play here, because you asked the question. So a lot of people picture it, like I said, is the Garden of Gethsemane being the atonement. And so if I'm sinning now, and I repent, it would have to be that this event somehow already occurred in order for Christ to be able to suffer for it back 2,000-plus years ago in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a problem of backwards causation that we've talked about before. And so, in this theory of atonement, there is no backward causation of atonement because it's more than just this one-time event. It is, like we said, it's the very way of being of God in the world with humans. Well put. Yes, okay, I guess that's where I go there. Okay, so I guess this is a good point, too. So you say, the pain that Christ suffered as a mortal is precisely the pain that is the most poignant experience of the atonement, though it is only one experience of atoning pain among others that Christ experienced. So that's my next question, I guess. And you've kind of addressed it there, but a lot of LDS people might be a little hesitant to fully accept this theory of atonement because the question naturally arises, then what did happen in Gethsemane? What did happen on the cross? Does that mean nothing now?
1: No, it, what happened in Gethsemane and on the cross is Christ joined the fullness, the totalness, the sheer depth of being in, in the greatest depth and going to the greatest height in this short period of time. In other words, in Gethsemane, we see Christ entering into the greatest union possible, not only with God, but with everybody who exists, Okay. So that literally, because this is the way God experiences. And so he's been immortal, but in Gethsemane, he experiences everything the way that God does. He is joining humanity with divinity. He then treks to the cross where he experiences the greatest depth of alienation possible for a human being to experience. He has experienced the fullness immediately before, the greatest fullness of, you know, being in union with God and being totally aware of his presence to the most total abandonment possible so that he he is being stretched from one end to the other. It's the greatest stretch that that any being could make. And so we focus on this because it is a microcosm and a picture of what atonement is. God takes his total union, leaves it behind so that he is then has the ultimate mortal alienation and what it means to be mortal, he experiences death. Christ then overcomes those, not on the cross only, but he, and, and this is what 2 Nephi 9 focuses on. There are other places in the Book of Mormon as well, where the atonement also includes the resurrection. Okay, because, and, and Paul sees it this way too. Christ's fulfillment of the atonement for Paul is, is when he is vindicated by God by being resurrected. And so the atonement now also includes overcoming death and overcoming our alienation. And so he has accomplished the fullness of joining human and divine life together, and that's just what atonement is, to be at one. And so we focus on this particular moment in his life because it is simply the greatest picture of what atonement means. We see it most clearly and starkly in this group of experiences beginning in Gethsemane and culminating in his resurrection.
0: Makes sense to me. Okay, let's do this... Alright, let me see if I can now answer at least the first four questions, because the fifth one's about ordinances. So, let's see what we've learned here. So, how is Christ's life, death, and resurrection either necessary or uniquely beneficial to expiate or eradicate the effects of sin in our life so that we are reconciled to God here and now? Okay, we went over that, so I guess uh, we could say, um, let's see...
1: Only a being who has joined human and fully divine together and who experiences the fullness of the stretch from being fully in union with God in the greatest sense possible to being fully alienated from God could overcome and share with us his experience so that we can then also, he he has compassion for us, he's moved for compassion because he has experienced everything firsthand and we then share our lives with him. So that only Christ, because of his unique mortal experiences, qualifies him in a unique way to eradicate the effects of sin in our lives when we join the energy of our lives together. How's that?
0: There, good. All right, and I'll, I'll try on these, but that was kind of a harder question to answer. So next, why can't we just be forgiven without someone suffering? And you say, we can. It's not about someone having to suffer because we're being forgiven. You're saying... The act of being in union with God is painful when we release our sins, but we're basically giving our sins to him to help him heal them. And then once we're healed, then I guess, for my clarification, I guess the pain does eventually lessen for Christ to be in relationship with us, correct?
1: Yeah, it's like having a toothache and it, and it gets healed. I mean, or it's, it's like, let me give another analogy, because it's really about this really slow energy or low light energy. That is then being quickened by the divine life to speed up, okay? That's a metaphor that is directly scriptural in Mormon scripture. He quickens this with his life. Let me give another. It's like the pain of having someone simply stop you. You know, you're moving forward and you run into a wall. And you need to keep moving, but you can't because something is stopping you. And the only way to get moving is to get this wall moving with you. But you're not going to get the wall moving with you unless you've got somebody who can move it for you. Christ can move it for us. All
0: right, that's a good one, yeah. Okay, uh, let's see. Number three, why does Christ's suffering and experience atone for our sins in a way that the Father and the Holy Ghost do not? So I guess I would say to this, you're saying God, like God the Father and the Holy Ghost being omnipotent, like you said, can view us and our suffering from a third-person type of view, but Christ's experience is unique because we're we're entering our relationship, or I don't know, I guess, are you saying, is your theory saying that because he became mortal, he can uniquely understand our experience and or that we're entering the relationship with Christ and not the Father and the Holy Ghost, or how would you clarify that, I guess?
1: Because of Christ's unique experiences as a human being, joining divinity with humanity and becoming human, he can atone for sin in a way that the Father and the Son cannot. Christ experiences the greatest alienation that is possible for a human being to to experience because he knows what it is to be fully divine and be fully at one, and he also knows what it is to be so fully rejected in the greatest moment of need that it is impossible to be further from God in, in that great moment from need in the sense that he really needs God and he's not there for him. He can't even fill him at all. And so Christ uniquely has the experience to atone for our sins.
0: Okay, makes sense there. Four, how could Christ bear our sins or take our sins upon him that we commit in the here and now in a way that caused him to suffer? And I'd say the compassion theory probably answers this question or makes sense of these quotes from scriptures to bear our sins, take our sins upon him better than any of the other theories just because He's literally taking the sins upon him, not just a temporary, let me just take care of that, and boom, it's gone. But he takes them upon him when he takes us upon him, and it causes him to suffer just because that sinful energy is painful. But it's not an eternal suffering, it's just suffering while we are coming up to his level.
1: Yeah, it's, it's painful for him to, to share the low light level of our lives when we join that with the level of divine light that's in his life. It's just a fact that it's painful for him.
0: And like I said, the fifth one is more about like ordinances of sacrament and baptism and stuff, and we can talk about that at another time, And I guess, unless you want to say anything about that.
1: No, I think, in, as a matter of fact, we covered that. We had a quote in, in the last podcast where we talked about how we share Christ's experience of living and dying with him in baptism. We take his body and his life's blood into us through the sacrament. We become anointed Christ by, and Christ means, you know, to be a Christ means to be anointed. So through the anointing, we become Messiahs and Christ with him. So the ordinances are ways of sharing vicariously through the ritual Christ's own life experience. And it is his life experience that enables him to atone. And so they are directly a symbol of his of sharing his life in atonement.
0: Okay, there we go. And I'd say it passes the test of being intelligible, non arbitrary, logically coherent, and morally acceptable. And I want to give emphasis again to just to juxtapose what, compared to the penal substitution theory that most Protestants and Mormons hold, is this is more morally acceptable because we're not causing an innocent to suffer in the place of a guilty. We are Healing a wound, I guess you could say, of sinners. We're healing the consequences and the woundedness of sin rather than someone taking the punishment that just has to be given to someone.
1: Yeah, and I'll finish by saying that probably the best metaphor for all of this is a woman giving birth. In her pain, there is a new life that comes into the world. It's just a fact that giving birth is very painful, okay? And a woman, every time. A woman gives birth, she walks through the valley of the shadow of death. It's just a reality. It's much less a reality for us than it was in the past, but it's still a reality. And so there are just some kinds of experiences that entail pain, even though the result is life. In this case, it's just the result that entering into this kind of relationship with Christ entails pain for him. But the result is that we have a shared life in which we begin to share in the divine life, in the process of sanctification through to a goal of Christification, where we fully share His light, because we have been quickened by His light in our own lives.
0: Okay, excellent. Um, And before we close here, let me just kind of give an update on what we're going to do in the next few podcasts, just so that we are aware of where we're going. So next time, we're going to talk about different theories of atonement that have been come up with through history. You know, there's some Middle Ages ones, and stuff from, you know, after that, and then the most Popular one, like I've repeatedly talked about, the penal substitution theory. Then, in the podcast after that, before we move on to the next chapter, I'm going to just read a paper that my dad wrote called Atonement in Mormon Thought. And it goes more in depth into the theory of or the, the compassion theory of atonement and also answers a lot of criticisms, some that were formally written about in papers and some that have just been brought up in general. And that will go into unique Mormon views of atonement as well. So that just be aware that that is kind of a companion piece to this and will probably need to be listened to to make full sense and it will probably answer a lot of questions. This time I just wanted to just have the overview of what this compassion theory is. Anyway, is there anything else you want to say before we close out?
1: No, just that I really enjoyed discussing it with you.
0: Okay, well thanks so much and have a good day. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash thought.